my, my talk today um, is entitled An Entire World in Motion, Civil Disobedience as Decolonizing Praxis. Um, so the, my subject for today is part of the research and argument from my book, which uh, was published this past April. Um, and the book as a whole is on civil disobedience and the civil rights movement. Um, and the book as a whole sort of toggles between philosophies of civil disobedience that come out of academic philosophy and political theory on the one hand, um, and the practices of theorizing that come out of the movement itself on the other hand. Um, so broadly speaking, the, the book has three central aims. The first goal is to trace out the relationship between the civil rights movement and the influential theories of civil disobedience that emerged um, in the 1960s and 70s. As I show, liberal and democratic philosophers were really interested and invested in the civil rights movement um, in particular ways. They were sympathetic to its tactics. They sought to defend the movement from conservative critiques that, that civil disobedience um, was simply breeding lawlessness. And they took up the question of whether or whether or not or why citizens have an obligation to obey the law. And they wanted to theorize political obligation in such a way that there would be room for and a normative defense of civil disobedience of the sort undertaken by the movement. So even with, with that, those sort of sympathetic aims in mind, what I argue is that their interaction with the civil rights movement by and large was to treat it like an object lesson or as a sort of proof of concept such that in crafting their theories, they referred to civil rights protesters or, or more often than not to Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail as a kind of evidence for the purchase of their theories. They interpreted the movement in this way as neatly explicable within the terms of their larger theoretical frameworks, um, those being political obligation, normative justification, and then later um, as the movement is, is taken up in retrospect by theorists in the 80s and 90s, democratic deliberation. And so we might say, you know, on the one hand, of course, that's what they did. They're philosophers and political theorists. They're not sociologists and historians. Um, so their aims are different. But what I want to suggest is that in doing so, they still made a, a set of descriptive assumptions about the, mo the motivations of movement activists, um, the problems that activists were addressing, the effect of their actions, and then about the right framework for interpreting and debating those actions. They operated, I try to show, with a stylized and polit politically expedient narrative about the civil rights movement in which black civility, forms of, of black civility on display through protest, triggered white empathy and ultimately legal redress. This emerging understanding of civil rights protest then shaped the normative contours of the concept of civil disobedience itself um, and began to generate as an increasingly solidified script for action. So the way that this usually runs is that civil diso civilly disobedient protesters have to submit to legal punishment, um, restrain themselves to use persuasive rather than coercive means, and make some kind of comp um, comprehensible appeal to constitutional principles or, or shared political principles recognized by the majority in order to signal a, a sort of acceptance of the system's legitimacy as a whole. And I argue in the book that there's another way of looking at it, a way that's that's eclipsed by this perspective. And I'll get to that in a moment. Closely related to this first aim, the second goal of the book is to think about the assumptions and beliefs about the nature of racial domination that is implied between the lines of these theories of civil disobedience. 
in arguing that breaking the law is justifiable in certain contexts of injustice and then in using the civil rights movement as an example of when that's the case, there are some tacit and sometimes explicit assumptions at work about the kind of problem posed by racial domination and racial injustice, um, the kind of problem it poses for what is taken to be a liberal democratic society like the United States. So I argue that these theorists tended to view racial domination as a relatively isolated, relatively anomalous form of injustice or exclusion, isolated and anomalous because it did not seriously harm or affect the overall legitimacy or integrity of the constitutional order. Um, and here I'm building on, on the work of um, Charles Mills and others. Racial injustice for them, um, like segregation, was serious, serious enough to justify breaking the law, but not conceptualized as systemic enough to more fundamentally question the frameworks of political obligation, deliberation, or normative justification that, that they argue defined democratic constitutional orders like the US. So this is what I call in the book, seeing civil disobedience like a white state that is taking for granted the legitimacy of the constitutional order, and in particular, a constitutional order that is defined in and through um, forms of racial hierarchy. Assuming as primary the ends of constitutional integrity and stability, even, even given that hierarchy, and centering the white citizen as the normative ideal, thereby figuring the problem of racial injustice as limited, exceptional, and all but already solved. What I argue is eclipsed by this, this way of working is the possibility that civil rights activists themselves had their own ideas about what their actions were doing and the problems that they were addressing. Um, that we might view movement activists not as objects for political theorizing, but as subjects engaged in political theorizing themselves. They offered, I argue, a different set of assumptions about the nature of racial domination and a different set of ideas about how civil disobedience and its forms of action worked to address that problem. What I suggest is that they were not primarily motivated by the question of political obligation that really fascinated um, political philosophers writing about this, that is what justifies breaking the law. Instead, I argue they oriented themselves toward the political dynamics of civil disobedience, um, arguments about the ways that it transforms individuals, structures and relations, and then the ethical and strategic stakes of this form of transformation. So my talk for, for today comes mainly from one chapter in the book and re relates to these second and third broader aims. Um, so what I'm gonna do, um, what I'm gonna talk about today is one of the frameworks mobilized by many philosophers of civil disobedience, this framework of the constitutional democratic nation state, um, and then the way that civil rights history offers an alternative framework for interpretation. So I'll just give a, a short, a quick overview of what I'm gonna do with the rest of my time. So the, the first uh, thing I'm going to discuss is the way that some theories understand civil disobedience as oriented uh, toward and situated within the democratic constitutional nation state. Um, and I'm gonna try to show how this framework shapes the interpretations of civil disobedience, but also how it generates a puzzle in need of an answer. Um, which in short, and I'll talk about this more in a minute, is that given the transnational history of civil disobedience as a form of action that really transgresses regime type, um, and as the product of a history in which movements across the world learn from and respond to movements in other very different contexts, how do we then end up with civil disobedience as a kind of object that is, that is thoroughly domestic and democratic in nature? 
So this is gonna set the stage for my argument, um, which in short is that the transnational context of civil disobedience matters for our interpretations of it um, generally. And in the case of the civil rights movement, it shaped the way that activists explained what they were doing, the problem they said they were addressing and the way that they talked about how civil disobedience might address it. So in turning to this context, I'm gonna to try to highlight three aspects. The first is a history of active transit and live connections between activists across multiple contexts. Um, here, I'm going to center the context of the US on the one hand and anti-colonial movements in India, South Africa, and Ghana on the other. I'll talk about the importance of these connections. Um, and the importance for me is, is the ways that it sustained processes of theorizing colonialism and Jim Crow as fundamentally linked as a shared conditional condition of racial domination defined by fear and violence. So this in turn, I will relate to ways of thinking about civil disobedience as a solution to this problem as a form of what I call decolonizing praxis. And then finally, I'll conclude by returning to these theories of civil disobedience and asking what, what difference this history makes. So to begin um, and talk a little bit about how civil disobedience is, is shaped in um, liberal and democratic political philosophy from the, the mid and late 20th century. Um, so my main focus here and in the book is on some influential theories of civil disobedience um, notably John Rawls' A Theory of Justice, but also others work by Michael Walzer, Peter Singer, Carl Cohen, Hugo Beto, and others. Um, and for these thinkers, the question posed by civil disobedience for philosophy is how to justify forms of lawbreaking within an order whose overall systems and principles enjoy legitimacy. So what they suggest is that civil disobedience as a, as a sociological phenomenon might occur everywhere, but it really only becomes a problem for philosophy that is a, a normative puzzle within constitutional democracies where the law is presumed to be the product of legitimate institutions that citizens themselves have an interest in maintaining. And it's under these conditions they suggest that breaking the law, even for very good reasons, becomes normatively troubling or requires a normative defense. So Peter Singer, for example, argues that there are, quote, special reasons for obeying a law, obeying the law in a democracy, given that laws, however imperfect, represent what he what he calls a fair compromise between complete competing claims to power. So by continuing to participate in the institutions and practices of a democracy, citizens take on a prima facie obligation to accept the results of the decision pre procedures that order those institutions. So that's, that's one way of, of situating civil disobedience. John Rawls too, though, though differing from Singer on a number of specifics as to how he views political obligation and the exception of disobedience, assumes in particularly his early work, um, but it, it runs through a theory of justice. He assumes as quote, requiring no argument that there is at least in a society such as ours, a moral obligation to obey the law. So for him, civil disobedience operates as a limited exception to the constitutional rule. This particular way of framing the philosophical question of, of civil disobedience, the context in which it does and does not pose a normative problem, then goes on to shape the kinds of claims, the forms of action, and the normative vocabulary presumably available to disobedience within the constitutional nation state. Because of the particular conditions of constitutional democracies, they argue civil disobedience must orient itself toward acting within what Rawls calls the limits of fidelity to the law. 
So even as, as disobedience break individual laws, they appeal to a common conception of justice that's held by the majority um, and enshrined within the basic legal order or the, the constitution of the democratic state. So in this way, the theoretical imagination of what civil disobedience is and what it looks like is determined by a particular way of understanding the obligations that are specifically generated by domestic democratic institutions. So in other words, the framework for understanding and justifying disobedience are the core principles of the democratic constitutional state. We'd have to show that disobedience is supportive of these principles and, and justifiable within their own terms in order for it to be normatively acceptable. So given this framework, the relevant actors and audience are interpreted um, likewise in domestic terms. Activists are acting in their capacity as citizens. They're facing an audience of fellow citizens and as well as state officials who, are, um, who represent them, who are uh, beholden to them as public servants. The target then is the reform of laws or policies that are out of step with legitimate constitutional procedures or principles. And because of this, the actions that protesters take have to signal this positioning. Disobedience has to be persuasive. It has to be non-coercive and non-violent um, insofar as it aims to signal respect for fellow citizens, as well as for the democratic constitutional principles that everyone, protesters and their audiences alike, have an interest in maintaining um, stabilizing and defending. So this may be a fairly familiar picture um, for you. Um, and it, the argument does provide a tight normative defense for civil disobedience in, in these contexts. And moreover, insofar as the civil rights movement is a crucial example, you know, we would probably raise eyebrows about a theory of civil disobedience written in the 1960s in the US that couldn't capture or explain important aspects of this movement. So it might seem like the civil rights movement actually fits fairly well within this picture. We can think about Martin Luther King Jr. mobilizing the language of the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. Um, we can think about a rather thoroughgoing commitment to nonviolence and think of all that and say more or less the, the movement is a good example of what these theorists are trying to articulate. But I'd argue that the theoretical framework also generates a problem or, or a, a puzzle of a different sort, which is that the history of civil disobedience is glo global and transnational. Um, and more specifically, it's rather well known that the civil rights movement was heavily influenced by Gandhi and the Indian independence movement. But as we've just seen, these influential theories interpret civil disobedience and the civil rights movement in domestic democratic constitutional terms as, as the main frame. So the question becomes, how is it possible that the civil rights movement with these well-established connections to Gandhian anti-colonial activism becomes viewed by the political theory literature and some of the historical literature as well as operating um, definitively or even exclusively within the normative landscape of the democratic constitutional nation state? So while the connection between somebody like King or Bayard Rustin or James Lawson to Gandhi and Gandhians is acknowledged as contributing to a distinctive form of nonviolent activism, the fact that Gandhi's campaigns were anti-colonial ones doesn't seem to figure in or, or um, matter here at all. It becomes nothing more than a preface, a kind of prehistory that doesn't actually meaningfully shape the normative vocabulary of the movement insofar as constitutional principles remain presumably the, the main or sole referent for the movement's claims. So my questions are, why is that? Um, how, how, does this, how does it come to be viewed in this way? What's lost when these connections are severed and does it matter? 
My argument is that it does matter and that quite a lot is lost. I contend that the domestic framework for civil disobedience renders invisible and, in, and irrelevant an entire geography of imaginative claim making and political theorizing undertaken by civil rights activists. And that the nature of this claim making is quite distinct from what the domestic framework uh, presumes or imposes. Over four decades and across three continents, I argue anti-colonial and civil rights activists constructed civil disobedience, not as a somewhat narrow exception to the terms of democratic or liberal political obligation, but as a response to the problem of, of white supremacy's reign of fear and violence, a decolonizing praxis that they argued could neutralize or lessen violent backlash and enable forms of self-emancipation. And that's the, the argument I'm going to, to try to demonstrate and defend in the time that remains. So as a starting point, I'm gonna frame the rest of what I have to say through the following statement, which was written by James Weldon Johnson, who was the first black executive secretary for the NAACP. Um, this is uh, part of, uh, an excerpt, a quote from an article that he wrote in the early 1920s. He observed, if non-cooperation brings the British to their knees in India, there's no reason why it should not bring them to their knees in Africa, nor is there any reason why it should not bring the white man to his knees in the South. And what I'm gonna to try to demonstrate here is that the linkages that Johnson is making between the disobedient action of non-cooperation and the context of colonial and racial rule in India, Africa, and the US South are meaningful ones for thinking about civil disobedience. Johnson's quote from the prior slide comes from, as I mentioned, the early 1920s, um, which is notable because that's when a, a new debate is ignited about the possibility of using civil disobedience against the Jim Crow regime in the United States. So throughout my research, I read through years of coverage um, in some uh, key newspapers within the black press, the African-American press, to trace the way that Indian, the Indian anti-colonial movement was covered and debated and the way that, that um, these arguments played out about the potential relevance for racial domination in the US. And what I observed there um, is that two concerns really emerge out of this coverage, out of these debates over Indian non-cooperation as it pertained to Jim Crow. And I'm here, I'm also building on um, some of the historical literature on, on this moment. Um, so one concern that gets raised, um, some coverage interprets Gandhian nonviolence as problematically foreign in a way, as is inapplicable to the US context, um, because it's presumed to be based in Hindu religious practice or principles or Indian cultural practices, and therefore not something that could believably or appropriately be translated into the US. But I think more importantly, at least for my purposes, is that some, um, expressed a worry that the Indian context was simply not analogous to the US in, in terms of the, the way that colonial rule operated. So for these writers, Jim Crow was simply a much more violent racial regime than the British Raj. And so the idea of nonviolent resistance seemed um, more than risky. It, it seemed like uh, a, a sort of death wish. And so these writers worried that um, that South Asians, though colonized, were a majority, um, that Indians were a majority in their own country and facing a very small minority of British officers, relatively speaking. And so in contrast, they argued African-Americans were simply much more vulnerable um, to both forms of state violence as well as white civilian violence. 
So illustrative of this latter concern um, was a back and forth that occurred through letters to the editor in the pages of The Crisis, which is the, um, the newspaper of the NAACP um, through the, the mid 1920s. And there E. Franklin Frazier, who's an important sociologist of race in the US, um, worried about the implications of nonviolence in the US. And what worried people like Frazier again, was not that India was a colony and America was a democracy. That's not the, that's not the disanalogy that, that he saw as pressing, but rather that by comparison to the regular excesses of Jim Crow violence and racial terror, British colonization on the subcontinent appeared more measured and restrained. Whether he's right or wrong about that is, is not particularly an issue, that was his perception. Um, so what would mass nonviolence do, Fraser worried, but loudly announced that Black Americans would not defend themselves from physical attacks and assaults, that they were voluntarily abdicating a right to defend themselves. How else, he asked, quote, are we to meet the attitude of those supposedly civilized intellectuals of the South who, according to Frank Tenenbaum, would resort to a general slaughter of Black people rather than give them justice, but show a greater reluctance in the face of the growing disposition on the part of Black people to retaliate? So Frazier's reference here to, to Frank Tenenbaum is to a book called Darker Phases of, the, Phases of the South, which is a 1922 investigation of the rise of the new Ku Klux Klan, um, in which Tenenbaum argued that white racial violence was based on a deep-seated status anxiety or fear. So this is a quote from Tenenbaum. He writes, there's an underlying current of apprehension that the South will be outstripped in population by the colored against the white. Um, it, quote, it's fear of losing grip upon the world, of losing caste, of losing control. It's the factor that underlies much talk of inferiority, of pointing out why it, meaning desegregation or racial equality, must not, why it cannot, why it may not happen, end quote. So in Tenenbaum's estimation, it was this bedrock fear that animated the persistent racial terror of Klan rule, a fear so powerful and yet so disconnected from social reality that it continually overwhelmed the potential for moral suasion, rational argumentation, education, or even law to restrain it. As he reported, quote, I recall talking to a man, a man of high standing in his state, a scholar of much learning, and he said to me, we will paint the state red before we paint it black. So it was this precise coupling of fear and violence that convinced Frazier of the inadequacy of nonviolent resistance and civil disobedience. Quote, suppose, um, suppose he said that a Gandhi-like figure should arise in the US to lead a black civil rights movement, to lead people to quote, stop tilling the fields of the South under the peonage system, to cease paying taxes to states that keep their children in ignorance and to ignore the iniquitous disenfranchisement and Jim Crow laws. I fear, he said, we would witness an unprecedented massacre of defenseless black men and women in the name of law and order. And there would scarcely be enough Christian sentiment in America to stay the flow of blood. In the midst of decades of lynch law and witnessing a virulent Klan revival, Frazier's concerns were, were certainly significant ones. The plausibility of nonviolent struggle in the context of the US racial order with its Knight Rider vigilantes and official acceptance of extreme anti-black violence was neither obvious nor inevitable. Frazier's pressing concern demanded an answer. If white Americans fundamentally feared black power and that fear routinely led to extraordinary violence, how could nonviolence ever offer a way to press demands without leaving black communities thoroughly disarmed in the face of reprisals? And so what I argue is that it was this framework not so much is it morally permissible for citizens of a legitimate liberal democracy to disobey the law and protest, 
but how can black citizens of a violent regime of racial terror plausibly resist nonviolently? How can nonviolence respond to the structural and interpersonal dynamics of violent racist hierarchies? This was the framework um, in which activists were, were debating and thinking about the possibilities of civil disobedience. Addressing Fraser's worry took shape over decades and across three continents through a process that I characterize as imaginative transit. And what I mean by imaginative transit, um, I'm, I'm trying to capture the creative constructive, constructed linkages between disparate contexts, the forged solidarities and notions of shared struggle and the actual literal transit of activists across a world in motion. While the notion of imagination is intended to underscore the intellectual labor and conceptual innovation required to construct a world of colonized and racially, racially oppressed peoples for whom nonviolence could provide an answer, the notion of transit here emphasizes the work of boundary crossing, of bodies in motion across continents in order to set bodies in motion in protest that enabled and emerged from such an enterprise. It's these lines of, lines of transit, I contend, that embedded civil rights activists in the US in a wider geography and a larger normative universe than a conception of purely domestic disobedience can truly capture. The constellation of animating ideas about what civil disobedience was and what it was good for here in the Jim Crow United States took shape transnationally through this movement of activists exploring nonviolence and amidst a set of arguments about what the conditions of segregation and colonialism shared. By the mid 1950s and the emergence of a mass nonviolent, um, excuse me, nonviolent grassroots uh, movement against segregation and a full decade before the recognized rise of black power and third world solidarity within the civil rights movement, the conception of civil disobedience was already fully transnational and thoroughly shaped by its connections to anti-colonial struggle. So there are a few aspects to this that I, that I discuss in the book. Um, the first is that I, I chart travel and exchange between activists, first between the US and India and later between the US and South Africa and Ghana. And I argue that what, um, what comes out of these exchanges um, is an emerging idea of a global color line as W.E.B. Du Bois called it, the idea of white supremacy as a global order um, and subjection to it as a broadly shared condition. Um, so these activists argued that racial hierarchy maintains itself through forms of fear and violence common to both regimes of colonialism as well as segregation and that they have a common, um, they have a set of common origins as well. This enabled a reconstruction of an idea of a global majority. Those who suffered ra racial domination were not alone and, and therefore were not within this frame vulnerable minorities, um, at least not in this, this broader view. These exchanges then enabled a process of reasoning through different contexts and different examples to understand how nonviolence against British colonialism in India might relate to its uptake against apartheid in South Africa or its successful use to liberate Ghana. And then finally, what emerged was a theory of nonviolence as a kind of decolonizing praxis, a means of liberating oneself and emancipating oneself from the imposition of fear and submission while neutralizing or destabilizing the way that racist, the, the kind of logic of violent racist retaliation, a reaction that they conceptualized is rooted in this fear. Um, the, the ways that, that um, white publics and white states might otherwise respond to armed struggle or violent rebellion. So thus in attending to these circuits of transit and the, context, the concepts forged along them, 
um, is an interpretive strategy intended to counter the decontextualizing and domesticating maneuvers um, that I identified in philosophies of disobedience. So just as a brief illustration of some of these aspects at work, I've posted here a couple of short excerpts from the writings um, published by Benjamin Mays, who was then um, the Dean of Howard School of Religion and later president of Morehouse College, who traveled to India at the end of 1936 to meet Gandhi. And then he, he wrote and spoke extensively about, about this experience upon his return. So when Mays returned from India in 1937, he focused in his writing and his, in his speeches on the effect of Gandhi's efforts um, on racial pride and in moving a subject population past fear. Quote, Mr. Gandhi has gone a long way toward making the Indian people proud of their race and proud of their great history, freeing them from years of domination and imposed racial inferiority, a lesson that African-Americans, quote, can understand and appreciate. Mays argued in a series of articles that this newfound pride stemmed from what he called the new conception of courage that comes from breaking free of the imperialism built on racialism that defined the British presence in India and learning to quote, face death, to die, to go to jail for the cause without fear and without resorting to violence. Moreover, be, moreover, he argued because the problem of race is, quote, worldwide, the Indian example had special pertinence for, quote, the indigenous of South Africa and Black Americans in the United States who were subject to the most violent forms of race, pre race prejudice, according to Mays. So for him, the lesson that the world ought to learn from Gandhi is plain, quote, when an oppressed race ceases to be afraid, it is free. In drawing on this language of fear, fearlessness, and pride, Mays presented nonviolent action as a demanding choice of the courageous, a means of asserting dignity, racial pride, and strength um, while contesting domination, rather than a default weapon of the weak. Building a nonviolent movement, he argued, entailed conquering fear of violence, fear of reprisal, and fear of death. It entailed identifying and calling out white supremacy as an empire of fear, maintained through both the frightened cruelty of the oppressor as much as through the frightened acquiescence of the oppressed. In a world built on racist violence, Mays suggested, the nonviolent might in fact have the strategic edge. The world, he argued, quote, is accustomed to dealing with men who strike back physically, men who are mentally cruel, and men who are saturated with fear. May's analysis, I argue, traveled some distance in supplying an answer to the concern that nonviolent direct action only left the vulnerable open to outright massacre and located nonviolence within an empowering and resonant language of self-liberation. For him, the Indian example demonstrated how powerful the seemingly powerless could be when they were organized along Gandhian lines, wielding nonviolence against the twin evils of colonialism and segregation or racialism as, and imperialism. And I'll just note that if the language here sounds like Martin Luther King, it's not accidental at all. Mays would later become one of King's key advisors, beginning with King's years at Morehouse and then extending through the rest of his life. Yet the world of nonviolent anti-colonial and anti-racist action was, was wider than just the connection between the US and India. So this isn't just a story about translating Gandhianism or um, uh, Indian anti-colonial strategies um, to the US context, but, but a bigger story um, about constructing an entire, an entire world. And so the thinking displayed by Mays here was also mediated through later connections, I argue, to anti-colonial struggles on the African continent. Through the 1950s, as political scientist Al Tillery has argued, um, in the same moment, 
um, South Africa became uh, an important flashpoint in the global confrontation between white supremacy and black equality, one that held particular significance for African-Americans interested in nonviolence. And as I argue in the book, connections to the anti-apartheid movement were particularly important because despite these years of transit and linkages constructed between Afro-America and Indian independence, um, it, it just still seemed that the subcontinental context did not seem quite analogous to the US one. It was an imperfect, um, an imperfect comparison and there was a lot of debate about whether, um, whether black Americans were properly analogized to, um, to the whole of the colonized population in India or whether they were more like, um, like low caste or untouchable Indians. And there was a, a whole debate about what the right analogy was. Um, and it, the analogy was never quite compelling or, or a, a perfect fit, but they constructed apartheid as intimately and disturbingly familiar. So what US civil rights organizers saw through the window of the 1952 South African defiance campaign was really a constant in motion against the racial order of colonial rule and a constellation of movements that they identified who were waging the fight nonviolently. As Bayard Rustin reported to the readers of the Baltimore Afro-American upon returning from his trip to Africa, Quote, the continent of Africa is a fire. From the Suez Canal to the Cape of Good Hope, colonial imperialists face unrest, threats, arson, and open rebellion. Their often proclaimed promise of freedom and time is as suspect throughout Africa as the time will take care of it theory among the masses of colored Americans. So for Rustin, just like for Benjamin Mays before him, nonviolent direct action offered the possibility of rising up against a militarily strong oppressor while minimizing the risk of either brutal annihilation or an ever escalating cycle of retaliatory violence. Challenging racial hierarchy, colonial power, and the entrenched interests of white supremacy, Rustin believed would inevitably provoke violence. So even the use of nonviolence could not eliminate that probability or, or that certainty in fact. But based on his own experience confronting domestic racism and buoyed by the success of the Indian example and its apparent reverberations throughout through South Africa, Rustin thought that nonviolence might shift the terms of struggle off the familiar ground of offensive and defensive violence, the ground that segregationist and colonial powers, he argued, both understood and anticipated and to some extent desired, while opening the space for liberation. Issuing a reply to Fraser's worry three decades before, Rustin intimated that white fear was the ultimate source of racist retaliatory violence, and that white fear of, an armed, black, of armed black movements would in fact only exacerbate this violence. Rustin identified in, a, in apartheid something quite familiar from the US context, this bedrock of white anxiety, the deep-seated fear of losing power that motivated racial hierarchy and its violent enforcement. As Rustin would later write of the Mississippi Delta, quote, fear in the Delta is Kenya's fear, fear to reaction, reaction to fear in the Delta is South Africa's reaction. Nonviolence in contrast, he argued, provided an active assertive form of defiance that could simultaneously confront and diffuse that fear. Indeed, the South African case proved important, important for what it suggested about nonviolent direction, that it did have, have force beyond the Indian context, and that it had the potential, it had a potential applicability under conditions that looked far more like Jim Crow than anything that African Americans saw um, in Indian colonization. Analogies between Jim Crow and apartheid were actually rather straightforward to make, as journalists, activists, and politicians routinely cemented the comparability of the South African and Southern systems of white supremacy by simply rendering apartheid as Jim Crow in countless headlines and articles throughout the years. 
At a deeper level, however, many identified in apartheid something, um, something both quite familiar um, but distinctive for African-Americans. So um, many African-Americans writing about South Africa surveyed what they saw of apartheid and found it in Benjamin Mays's words, worse than anything that ever existed in the Southern United States. An assessment that was based in part on, um, on the way the Milan government showed a real disinterest in, in even dressing segregation up in liberal rhetoric. So collectively, what I argue is that these analyses set up a particular structure of analogy and disanalogy that was strategically useful um, between the US and South Africa. So apartheid was both the same and worse. And what I argue is that conceiving of apartheid and Jim Crow as literal translations of each other helped forge an imagination of a shared struggle and structural similarity between the South and South Africa while also conceiving of racial hierarchy in the US as somehow a less severe form of its South African translation, which helped insulate these nascent potentialities for nonviolence non in the US from their eventual eclipse in South Africa. In the meantime, um, I argue events elsewhere on the continent would, bolt, would bolster the case for nonviolence as a practice of grassroots anti-colonialism. Um, and this, this happens through, through an engagement with, with Ghanaian liberation. So when on the heels of the, this um, occurs on the heels of the conclusion of the Montgomery bus boycott as Ghana won its independence. And Martin Luther and Coretta Scott King travel to Accra as Kwame Nkrumah's honorary guests at the Independence Day celebrations. And as Nkrumah delivered his Independence Day speech and raised the flag of the new nation, King reports being, um, being moved, hearing Nkrumah conclude his speech with the words, free at last, free at last, free at last. After King returns from Ghana, he delivered a sermon in his home parish of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. Um, and there he recounted these moments after the flag of the newly sovereign nation of Ghana was raised in Accra. Um, and this is a, a quote from, from the sermon. He says, when Prime Minister Nkrumah stood before his people out on the polo ground and said, we are no longer a British colony. We are a free sovereign people. All over that vast throng of people, we could see tears. And I stood there thinking about so many things. Before I knew it, I started weeping. I was crying for joy. And I knew about all the struggles and all of the pain and all of the agony that these people had gone through for that moment. So the pain and agony were quite real for King in that moment. In the two and a half months that had eclipsed, uh, elapsed, excuse me, between the conclusion of the Montgomery bus boycott and King's departure for Ghana, racial terror had been unleashed on Montgomery's black citizens. Homes and churches were bombed, black bus riders were attacked, snipers took aim at passing buses, and Klansmen rode through black neighborhoods intimidating residents. In fact, just as King was leaving the country for Ghana, the city commission decided to suspend bus service altogether for several weeks on account of the violence. So as King stood weeping at the Ghanaian independence celebrations, he was not a man triumphant in the glow of a decisive success, but embattled, anxious, and holding on to the tenuous threads of a fragile, limited, and easily reversible gain. But what King saw in Ghana, he said, filled him with a renewed sense of possibility for what the tools of civil disobedience and nonviolent action could achieve and the meaning that they might hold for the oppressed everywhere. Connecting African-Americans to Ghana through a history of slavery, King used the last half of his sermon to relay, quote, three or four things that Ghana's independence reminds us of and the things it says to us as we ourselves find ourselves breaking a loose from an evil Egypt. 
Echoing Frederick Douglass's insistence that, the, that power concedes nothing without demand, the first lesson that King drew was that the path to liberation was necessarily one of self-liberation. Quote, the oppressor never voluntarily gives freedom to the oppressed. If Nkrumah and the people of the Gold Coast had not stood up persistently revolting against the system, it would still be a colony of the British Empire. Freedom is never given to anybody voluntarily. The evidence of this truth, King suggested, lie not just in Ghana, but in India and in the history of abolition. King found great hope in the idea that Ghanaians could win their freedom, that they could break, break loose from oppression and violence using the tools of nonviolent direct action. And this was King's second lesson. Here is a nation that is now free through nonviolent means. But for all King's optimism that nonviolence could deliver freedom from oppression without unleashing bitterness and reactionary hatred, he still had to speak directly to the conditions on the ground in 1957 Montgomery. So Ghana's third lesson he suggested was one that Montgomery's black residents had already learned that with struggle against white supremacy comes racist retaliation. Quote, Ghana reminds us that whenever you break out of Egypt, you better get ready for stiff backs. You better get ready for homes to be bombed. You better get ready for churches to be bombed. Even so, King concluded, Ghana's independence provided undeniable proof for him that, quote, the old order of colonialism, of segregation, of discrimination is passing away, and that freedom for African-Americans surely could not forever be delayed. Such was the power of the Ghanaian moment that it could, as King told Etta Moten Barnett in Accra, give impetus to oppressed peoples all over the world, in Asia and Africa, of course, but also in America. So to conclude, uh, what does this history suggest, if anything, for theorizing civil disobedience? I started out by suggesting that the framework of constitutional democracy renders civil disobedience uh, a problem for philosophy, motivating the question, what are the features of and limits on actions that violate the law, but nevertheless uphold or strengthen the constitutional order? My talk has suggested that in fact, civil rights activists framed the problem differently. Um, facing the prospect that nonviolence might be used in the US, they instead asked how to dismantle a racist order, how to neutralize the fear and violence of oppressors, how to counteract the fear and submission bred by domination. These are the questions that nonviolence had to be able to answer. And in trying to answer these questions, um, these figures constructed an understanding of civil disobedience that, that doesn't fully map onto the one we get in, in philosophy journals at the time. I've suggested that civil disobedience and nonviolence appeared as plausible answers to these questions in part because of their anti-colonial anti pedigree. It mattered for these activists that nonviolence was used against colonial regimes in India and Ghana because they saw the problem of Jim Crow as structurally related to the broader global problem of violent white rule over subject racialized populations. This history therefore, um, I, I would argue, doesn't pose a new problem for philosophy in the sense that it doesn't generate a new puzzle in need of normative justification. Instead, I think it reveals liberal democratic philosophy, its habits of analysis and its ways of seeing to be itself a sort of problem. As the theorists of the 20th century looked at mid-century US civil disobedience, a form of activity emerging out of and against the context of worldwide struggle against varied forms of white supremacist rule, they nevertheless devised analyses that minimized the problem of racial hierarchy and disregarded the global anti-colonial networks sustained by activists in transit as philosophically unimportant for the questions that they were asking. 
But these, this context and these connections matter for what activists were up to. And as I've suggested, figures like Mays and King seized on the idea that fear held white supremacy in place. The fear of the oppressed tending toward anguished submission and the fear and status anxiety of the oppressor tending toward violent repression. They argue that this fear could be powerfully challenged and transformed through the creative strategic use of nonviolent protest and civil disobedience. For them, it was only nonviolence understood not as a form of constitutional appeal, but as decolonizing praxis that could offer a means of black self-assertion, self-emancipation and empowerment while simultaneously reducing the likelihood of, of deadly white violent reprisal, backlash and resentment. Only nonviolence for them could enable citizens themselves to transform a racist political and social order while leaving room nevertheless for the possibility that one's adversaries and one's oppressors might themselves emerge changed and not simply defeated or embittered. And as I try to go on to show in the book, this was an idea with real power, but not without its own complications. So I will end there to leave enough time for questions.